Right, you've had about a week to recover from the jet lag of touching back down on Earth and we're going right back up through the universe. It's another episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan. This is the show where we take a look all through the universe, the galaxy, the solar system. We search out all those science secrets lurking nearby. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, if you subscribe to Fun Kids Podcast Plus, you'll get this podcast. Loads more bonus stuff as well, completely ad-free. Now this week we're chatting to a space genius all about the world's first ever renewable spacecraft... One of the new things that lots of different companies are trying to do at the moment to make space travel more green is create reusable spacecraft that we can use over and over and over again. And Boeing have a new one called Starliner that hopefully, if everything goes all right with it, we'll be able to use it over and over again to get people to and from space. And we'll stay up floating around the galaxy and head to deep space high to learn all about space weather. Well, that's space weather. Disturbances in space near a planet that are caused by solar winds. And I've got your questions to answer. This week they are on sneezing with the sun and why onions make you cry. It's all coming up in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's kick things off with your science in the news. A pair of golden-tabbed robber flies are award winners. They've been crowned overall champion of the Royal Entomological Society's Insect Week photo prize. It shows one standing beside the other. The picture is called It Takes Two, taken by Pete Burford. Loads of brilliant photos were all entered, which you can look up by searching for the Royal Entomological Society online. Some that didn't quite win were a brilliant blue-tailed damselfly, also a hummingbird hawk moth drinking, and a cricket wading over grass. It's amazing how the technology and cameras we have now show these tiny creatures in mid-flight, mid-wander. We're there just capturing a second of their life that goes by so quickly. What a brilliant idea. Also, this is quite bad news. Some of the strongest sea temperature rises have been shown around the UK and Ireland. Data from the European Space Agency has shown that water temperatures have risen by as much as four degrees. The Met Office say the reason is partly human-caused climate change. We've been chatting a lot about this on the show over the past couple of years. And natural changes have caused it too. And this is very bad because scientists say hot oceans can kill fish and other sea life on a huge scale we see here the impacts of choices that we make how it affects other animals which may then filter down to what you can end up eating on your plates and finally the fossil of a newly discovered dinosaur has been found on the isle of Wight. now the isle of Wight is a little island off the south coast of england it's around what's called the jurassic coast they found loads of dinosaurs around that area and this one is an ankylosaur Experts think it had blade-like armour. It ate only plants too. They've called this creature Vectipelta Beretti. They think it lived between 66 and 145 million years ago. That's what almost 100 million years worth of time that this dinosaur could have been around. Uh, how brilliant is it that even today, 2023, we are still finding completely random creatures that we knew nothing about that lived hundreds and hundreds of million years ago. I love it. All right, let's spin the wheel of the A to Z of engineering. Every week recently, we've been diving into Engineer Academy. Just before we go to another lesson at Deep Space High a little later on in the podcast. Now, Engineer Academy, we catch up with our best mate, our engineering expert friend, Engers, to learn all about engineering. 
what's been made, who made it, what it does, who invented it, all of that. And we've been going right the way through the alphabet from A to Z. We don't want to do just the next letter every week, though. That would make things a bit boring and predictable. So with Engers, we've been getting a new random letter every week by spinning the big wheel. Hello and welcome to another Engineering Academy, where we're exploring an A to Z of everything engineering. Let's spin the wheel and see where we're engineering today. Over to Engers to spin the wheel. It's S. And S is for software engineering. Thanks, Engers. It's almost impossible to imagine a world without computers. Not just the ones we use for schoolwork and to play games, but those behind the technology used in almost every field. From space rockets to supermarkets. And it's all thanks to software engineering. So what's so soft about it? Well, software is the name given to a field of engineering that designs and writes programs for computers and other electronic devices to make them carry out a specific set of instructions. There are around 3,000 companies in the UK producing software, employing a massive 400,000 people. So what do all those people do? And just how is software developed? Here's Engers to help crack the code. Before any software engineer does anything, they need to have a clear idea of what they want the program to do. Is it to solve a problem, like making sure an online shop doesn't show products that have sold out? Or to improve a process, perhaps speeding up the way robots are used on a car production line? Or is it just to take a cool story idea and make it into a video game? Once they know what the software needs to do, the next step is for the engineers to create a list of all the existing process elements so they can come up with a plan about how each talks to the other. That might be how an online shop talks to its storeroom. Or for a video game, it's important it knows how the consoles behave, how it'll talk to the system's memory to save progress, and the type of graphics card to get the best visual experience. After the design phase, each part of the software is coded. That just means instructions are written in a computer language, telling the computer exactly what to do at each step and in what order. This stage is sometimes called implementation. Next up is the critical part of the process, testing. This is vital to see if the program meets all the requirements. If there are bugs or mistakes in the code or the components don't work together as they should, it'll be back to the coding to make changes and fix errors. Coding is at the heart of the process, and in order to code, you need to know the right language to use. There are lots of different computer languages. Some of the most common are Python, SQL, Java, HTML, and JavaScript. Scratch is a program you might have used to code at school. It's based on JavaScript, which is the most widely used language in the world because it's easy to learn and can be put to work in almost any industry. With so many languages, you might be wondering how exactly computers understand them all. Let's crack the code. A software programmer might have written a program in JavaScript to make a character walk forward. It might say character dot walk forward brackets 10 steps close brackets. But computers themselves don't understand languages like JavaScript. They operate using something called machine code. 
which is a binary-based system that carries out instructions using electronic switches being on or off. Machine code can understand what to do based on a series of steps. For example, to describe a character walking, it might be lift character's left foot up, lean forward, place left foot down, lift right foot up, lean forward, place right foot down. As you can imagine, it would take a very long time to put together all the instructions for something complicated. So it's over to a compiler, a tool which takes the JavaScript and turns it into the binary-based machine code, which your computer can understand. It's like using Google Translate to communicate with someone who speaks a different language. Some software designers use a wide range of languages. Others might have a particular preference. There are different compilers for different languages, and so it often doesn't matter what language was used, because at the end of the day, it will be converted into machine code, and the process is completed. Thanks, Engers. Now, whilst anyone can learn simple coding, to have a career in software engineering, you need to have a very good understanding of some computer languages. And so normally you would need to go to university to study for a degree. I'm Joe, and I'm a software engineer. We create software like the software you use on your laptops, phones, you know, all that daily. The software we work on in CACI UK ranges from software made for retail, automotive, uh, and then that kind of goes into government, public sector stuff. It, yeah, it all ranges. You know, software is everywhere. So, you know, when you go across the streets, everything on your phone, it's always going to be important in modern life. Software has been a part of some of the most important moments in history. You know, the moon landing, breaking wartime encrypted messages, and winning the war, uh, and the internet as we know it. It isn't necessarily working out, you know, a, a solution to a puzzle. It's just trying different solutions until something eventually works. It's it can really vary. And some engineers will hate puzzles, <laughs> hate games. You know, everyone's unique and, and it's, a, it's a mixed bag, really. There is some, you know, some crossover and, and people will enjoy different things. I'm personally terrible at Rubik's Cubes, um, <laughs> but I find most other puzzles really interesting. Computer games as well, a, a lot of people enjoy them. Uh, they're a great example of problem solving. Even if it isn't a puzzle-specific game, those types of get any really type of game or to uh, require you to think outside of a box, work something out. So a lot of people will experience that, you know, firsthand. You know, at school, I was really sure what I wanted to do. After finishing high school, I kind of looked at jobs online, saw one for a software engineer and just kind of applied and fell into it really. And also a college course at the same time in computing. It ended up being kind of like a hybrid apprenticeship. And, and you know, even after finishing college, I was either going to do an apprenticeship or go to university. Uh, I could have done Eva, I just, I just went to university to do computer science. But, you know, now you really see apprenticeships really, really being something, you know, a really good route to take. You get the practical experience, you get to work with people in the industry. We do apprenticeships now as well at CACI and, and uh, you'll see a lot of places doing it because it, it, it's, it's so valuable. So uh, the outreach stuff, you know, we go to schools, we, we do workshops, we do talks. We see a lot of, you know, from a young age, there's, there's, those stereotypes really aren't there yet. Uh, you know, anyone's interested. Uh, it, it's really good to see, uh, you know, young girls, boys, anything, just kind of really getting into it at a really early age as well. And they're doing stuff that I didn't do at high school. And they're doing it, you know, right at the start of high school, sometimes even primary school age, they're learning you know, the basics. And it's, it's really good to see because it, it's such an important thing now to just get them started early on and removing those gender stereotypes 
So whatever you make could be used for 20 years and then, you know, it could be valuable, whatever it is, just because how it gives you experience and how it can be adapted by people. People always look up code for examples, so it could always be uh, used and, and could really be a value to for you. Uh, I think there's there's a lot of useful applications to help out people in the household. You know, there's a lot of adaptations you can make for, for things. So, for example, young people like to play games, but there are people who don't necessarily have the ability to play games the same way because they, they might, you know, struggle with the use of their hands or not be able to hold a controller. So there's a lot of adaptations that are starting to become more popular, but something that would be really, really good is, is if those were more widely available and, and there was just a lot more different versions and, and kind of ways you could, you know, you could get those available to kids because I think it's really important to get those kind of adaptations and that's something that, that has to be programmed and and made and that's another thing a hardware engineer would have to do as well and work with a software engineer potentially so there's you know a lot of kind of collaboration and stuff that has to be involved there there are you know, uh, controllers that, that work with you know one hand there there's uh, pads that use your kind of vision like your eye uh, to kind of move around a, a kind of control kind of scheme like a, kind of a mouse cursor on the screen there's a lot like that and and the more available you know the better really i'm alice and i am also a software engineer yeah so a really cool example of something that we work on is our space weather project so we work on this for the met office which if you don't know it's the uk's national weather service it's the people who tell you if it's going to rain or snow uh so instead of working with weather which is on the earth, rain, snow, wind and everything like that, we work with space weather, which is anything in between the sun and the earth. So this can be two main things. There's solar flares, which is when the sun pushes out a massive amount of light really, really quickly, and then that will reach earth within about eight minutes, which is how long it takes for light to get to Earth at the speed of light. And there's also other things called coronal mass ejections or CMEs. Uh, so these are massive ejections of plasma because the sun is just a giant ball of a lot of kind of hot gases and energy and sometimes it needs to release all of that. Uh, so these coronal mass ejections will be pushed forwards towards Earth. They can come with a lot of different effects. Um, so when they hit the Earth, lots and lots of different things can happen. Uh, the main nicest one is it will cause the northern and southern lights, the aurora borealis, which are all the lights in the sky you might see in Iceland. But other things can happen as well, because when they push out a lot of plasma, a lot of particles of energy get pushed out as well, and that can interfere with electrical signals. So this is really, really important because it can knock out satellites and broadcasting systems. So this is really, really important stuff. And what we do at CACI is build a kind of website that forecasters at the Met Office can look at. So there's a bunch of models which data can get run through and those will spit out kind of images and videos that forecasters can look at to monitor the situation and forecast any space weather events before they happen. I think kind of the first time that I figured out that software was that important was I was in school and learning about um, winning the Second World War and there was a man called uh, Alan Turing who basically created kind of the first, not quite the first computer because that might have been a bit earlier, but um, he managed to decrypt signals from the Germans, which helped us win the war. And I didn't know at the time, but that was all to do with software. We have something called front-end and back-end engineers. So a front-end engineer would be someone who would build 
anything that you're interacting with. So if you would scroll through a website or go on an app on your phone, that is the front end, which they'll help build. Uh, there's also the back end, which is basically anything that you don't see. So say if you're putting something into a calculator, when you press go, the back end is what works that out, but you don't have to see that. I think kind of each front end and back end, you can be different types of problem solvers and fit kind of into those different areas, depending on what you want to do. I think kind of also links to all different types of engineering. I mean, most other jobs as well, be it engineering or not, because I mean, problem solving is just trying to like overcome an obstacle in your way, which I think we do in daily life, be it I don't know, making a cup of tea and the kettle doesn't work or fixing anything else. I have always been quite a big fan of games and puzzles like kind of Sudoku and anything like logic based, but I found kind of as I've grown up that my favorite puzzle solving thing, which I still consider puzzle solving is cooking and baking. Because I mean, you'll follow through a recipe, sometimes the instructions might not work and you have to figure out what's going wrong. Uh, did you add too much flour? Is the temperature not just right? Because uh, your oven might not be the same as what they used when they did the recipe. Uh, so my journey into software engineering was a relatively standard one of um, I did, I studied computing at school, then went to uh, university to do computer science and then got a job as a software engineer. My interest in software engineering and programming did actually start in a slightly different way because at first when I was in school I thought I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. So I had selected my A-levels based on what would be best for that uh, and my best friend decided she wanted to do a taster lesson for computing uh, but then she looked at the list and saw that she would be the only girl there uh, and asked me to come along with her just so she wouldn't be the only girl she said that I could sit in the back and not pay attention just so that I was there to support her so then I turned up uh, sat there for the whole hour and found it incredibly interesting and that just kind of sparked my interest so I decided to swap out one subject and then ended up loving it so much over the course of two years that I ended up doing it for university. So I think something I'm really excited about and I think could be used really well in the next 20 years is something called machine learning. So machine learning is a way of teaching computers things kind of like how humans learn. So if you show a computer an image of a cat it will, and you tell it it's a cat, of course, it knows it's a cat. If you then show it a second image of a cat, it won't really know what it is because it can't remember and it doesn't learn. So machine learning is the process of, say, shoving several thousand images of cats, dogs, and birds at a computer and letting it learn what they look like. So I think the applications of this could be absolutely huge and it's still being developed, but I don't know, some things I can think of it being used for could be even small personal things in the house. Um, a computer could learn what you like to cook, what you like to have for breakfast, and maybe start adding things to your shopping list before they go down because it knows that you want to buy them again. And then it also has much bigger, bigger applications. It could be used in like healthcare. So a computer could learn kind of the signs and symptoms of something and maybe using your past medical history, figure out if something's going to happen before it does. And that's our take on the letter S. It's been sensational. If you'd like to check out some other types of engineering, why not check out structural, safety, supply, or even space engineering? Engineer Academy, created with support from the Royal Academy of Engineering. If you would like to find out more about the A to Z, visit funkislive.com slash engineer.
let's get your science questions on then. I love this part of the show. If you have ever heard anything that has made you think, what? Maybe you're in school and the teacher said something and you thought, is that possibly true? Maybe you were in the playground and one of your mates said something and you thought, oh, there's no way that can be true. Well, come to me. I am the expert that will do all the digging, all the science investigation to find out the answer for you. The best way that you can do that is by leaving a voice note uh, using the big record button at funkidslive.com or over on the free Fun Kids app. Loads of people got involved this week, so let's see who's first. Hi, my name is Casper and I'm six years old. Why do I always sneeze when I look at the sun? You do sneeze when you look at the sun, don't you? When you look at any light. I need to say right now, don't look at the sun. If you need to sneeze, just wait for it. Do not look at the sun. Experts have done quite a lot of research on this, though. Why bright lights make you sneeze. Thing is, even with all that research, no one knows exactly. They think it might be to do with your parasympathetic nervous system. Three big words. And they are parts of your body that are connected to make you respond to stress. It helps you relax or get going. It helps you with your fight or flight responses with the adrenaline, figuring out what to do when you might be in danger. Experts think that maybe one part of this nervous system talks to the other. So when you look at light, your pupils get smaller, you squint, and that sends a message to your brain that tells you to sneeze. When your eyes narrow, maybe it makes a little bit of fluid drip into your nose, which makes you want to clear it out, so you sneeze. So that's the idea. They don't properly know, but they think it's all to do with that. It's not always intentional. We don't really know uh, what benefit it gives us. But when you squint, water goes into your nose, a little bit of fluid, and that's what makes you sneeze. Casper, thank you so much for the question. Let's get on another one. This is from Penelope. My name is Penelope, and I want to know why onions make you cry. Bye. Ah, one of the oldest science questions knocking around. Why do onions make you cry? It's because they're very good at absorbing sulphur, which is an element. Now, you find sulphur all over the place. It makes that burning smell like a volcano sometimes. Uh, When you cut into an onion, you release the sulphur that has been absorbed by everything in it. And that chemical, it floats through the air and it slightly burns your eyes. So to stop your eyes being hurt by this, they start to water to try and wash away that sulfuric irritant to try and get rid of it. That's why if you are cutting an onion, it might be best to wear glasses to stop that sulphur getting near your eyes. Penelope, thank you so much for the question. If you have anything that you want answered next week on the show, best thing to do, uh, get out your phone, open up the free Fun Kids app, click record on there, send me a voice note and I will do all the digging for you next week. It's time for this week's Dangerous Dan. And we've been looking recently, haven't we, at creatures with very strange ways of defending themselves. Today, we are heading into the sky to look at the Eurasian roller. It's a stocky bird. The adults are a glorious pale blue colour with black and gold patches of feathers. They look majestic and also kind of mean. Remember last week, we spoke about the potato beetle, didn't we, that covers itself in poo? Well, this creature, the Eurasian roller, does something like that, a little bit different, from a different end of your body. It does it with sick. When a baby roller is in the nest and senses a predator nearby, they do something extremely disgusting. They cover themselves with their own vomit. And they roll around in it. They get it everywhere. It makes them look and smell disgusting, which means they're much much less likely to be eaten because they look so gross. So that kind of wards the predator away, but it's much more useful. The parent will smell the rank, sick stink wherever it is, 
and they will know that something is wrong and it makes them realise their baby in danger. It's like a way of talking. They make the sick, they cover it with themselves that lets their mum or dad know, look, there's a big creature here that wants to eat me. So the grown-up flies back to defend their offspring from predators, maybe like bigger birds. It is disgusting, it looks and smells awful, but it helps them to survive, and it's a brilliant way of defending themselves, which means the Eurasian roller goes straight onto our Dangerous Dan list. We've been up to space a few times on this week's podcast, and just when we've got back to Earth, it's time to head up there again. We are going to the smartest school in the solar system, Deep Space High. Uh, recently, we've learned about Mars and robots, and we're starting a new series now. It's all about weather up on Deep Space High. We're catching up with Professor Pulsar, Stats, Quark, Sam, all pupils at the school. We're finding out that, like the weather on Earth, which changes all the time, space weather does it too, but maybe a bit more dramatically. Deep Space High, Intergalactic Weather Watch. Shush, you lot. Class has started. Oh, Quark, you're dripping all over the floor. Did you get caught in a storm in the wormhole? No, I've just got a terrible cold. Ah, <laughs> Well, mop it up and take your seat. Talking about storms, this term we're going to be looking at space weather. I didn't even think there was weather in space. I mean, you don't see astronauts with wellies on. <laughs> well, if you lot quieten down a bit, maybe you'll learn a thing or two. Let's start at the beginning. We usually talk about weather as something we experience on the surface of a planet. Let's take Earth as our example. Yes, home sweet home. That's not fair. Sam will know it already. There's only one know it all around here. So, weather. On a planet like Earth is a way to describe the state of the atmosphere around you at a particular time. Maybe it's warm or cool, wet or dry, cloudy or sunny. And sometimes it could be all those things in one day. That's right, Sam. Weather changes constantly. Now, does anyone know what causes things to change? Galactic dragons breathing fire can certainly make things warm up. There's no such thing as galactic fire-breathing dragons. Well, not as far as we know. Certainly not on Earth. Yeah, I think I'd have seen them. Nah, it's just the sun that gives us heat. And it's the heating up and cooling down that creates weather patterns. Is that right? That's right, Sam. It's all down to the sun. Or, more accurately, the relationship between a planet and its sun. The sun can affect conditions on Earth in other ways, too. You might draw it on a piece of paper like a plain old yellow circle. But reality is much more dramatic. Let's get closer. Sunglasses on and buckle up, everyone. Suns are massive balls of plasma, and plasma is a super hot type of gas. Every second, trillions of atoms collide together and release their energy. Heat from the sun is this solar energy coming in pulses through space. And just like a sizzling pan of fat or a bubbling stew, there can be spits and spurts in the mix, or even solar storms. As you've just seen, these storms can cause larger-than-normal pulses of radiation to be thrown into the solar system, and that can impact on planets. It's like there's storms going on in space that we don't even notice. Weird. Well, that's space weather. Disturbances in space near a planet that are caused by solar winds. 
massive waves of radiation from changes in the sun, like the one we're riding on right now. How come we don't notice them on Earth? I feel like if I looked up in the sky, I should be seeing all these crazy waves of fire or something. Well, radiation is invisible to the human eye, for starters. But here's the thing, Sam. Space weather absolutely can affect life on Earth. Those massive pulses of radiation can affect energy supplies, navigation signals, and even computers. So, if there was a massive solar storm, might the internet go down? Never mind the internet. The power supply across a whole continent might go down. Just imagine how that would affect life on Earth. Fortunately, very large storms are pretty rare and the sun tends to have a cycle of activity which means we can have an idea when a large storm might be coming. We're going to be finding out a lot more about space weather in the next few lessons. Hey sir, what goes up when the rain comes down? An umbrella. <laughs> oh, quark. I need an umbrella when you're around. Class dismissed. Deep Space High, Intergalactic Weather Watch. With support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash space. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. We will be back next week on the podcast. If you have enjoyed any of the shows you've heard so far, you can get loads more. Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. They're on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com too. You can hear even more podcasts, exclusive bonus episodes. You can get all of them ad-free, all of your favourite shows by subscribing over at Fun Kids Podcasts Plus. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio, on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com.